This is Block by Block, a community news program from WPPM-LP 106.5 FM, where we explore issues affecting the Philadelphia area with interviews and reports filed by members of the community. I'm Selena Singleton. And I'm Chris Hill. Tonight we'll hear stories from our community news reporters about a family struggle with long COVID, an exhibit highlighting the impact of gun violence, indigenous heritage, and a new concert venue for avant-garde music in Philadelphia, South Philadelphia. Nearly three years after the start of COVID-19 pandemic, many people have returned to pre-pandemic behaviors, but it continues to play a role in many of our lives. According to the World Health Organization, more than six million people have died of the disease. And many people who have suffered bouts of COVID continue to experience symptoms and are now living with long haul COVID. That means they may continue to have severe symptoms, including fatigue, blood clots, muscle impairments, or organ failure for weeks, months, or even years after contracting COVID-19. Block by Block reporter Michelle Gillard Houston spoke to Philadelphian who experienced recovering from a life-threatening case of COVID inspired him to create a nonprofit to help other people living with long-haul COVID. Rodney Westcott contracted COVID during the height of the global pandemic in 2020. Rodney and his wife, Monique, shared his story as well as his triumphant recovery and path to purpose in creating COVID V Conquerors. It started um, November the 8th. My daughter went to a, a meeting with some colleagues and somebody in that group had COVID. Two days later, my birthday, which was the 10th, we had a gathering at my house and I picked up a mask. I knew the mask wasn't mine, but I just said, hey, you know, what's the chances? Two days later, Asha says she has COVID. So I said, let's just isolate ourselves until one night. Things just changed. I had a really high fever, went to take a shower to kind of break the fever. And that was it. Next thing I know, I woke up in the hospital and I'm like, looking, I'm, I'm seeing people with space uniforms on and stuff, people around me, and they're informing me that I was in the hospital, that I was okay. They asked me to go on the ventilator. I said I didn't want to go on the ventilator. I wanted to go through other options. For around eight days, the options were exhausted. They kind of let me know that either I do it now or I wasn't going to be on this earth for long until they just told me you got about 15 more minutes to live. I still didn't say yet, but they got the authorization from Monique, my wife. I talked to her briefly on the screen, and that was it. That was all I remember. And that was a scary day, December 1st, for us, because that meant that we were no longer going to be able to communicate with him. And we heard in the news nobody was surviving the ventilator. The doctor was in the room with Rodney when he made the decision that he needed to go on the ventilator, and the fear in his eyes uh, was on me, and I'll never forget that look that he had that he didn't want to go on the ventilator. He was not ready to die. So all I could do was pray. Didn't know anything else to do. I did give the okay because I said, just save his life. Please save his life. 
January 13th, I woke up and I discovered I couldn't walk. I couldn't move. My wife actually let me know what happened to me. That's when the journey began. The journey began the first couple of weeks. I was really depressed for the obvious reasons. One day, I moved my fingers. I just looked down and said, this is my chance to get better. I chose to um, just pivot on my, my attitude, my direction. So I just made a pact with myself that I wanted to get better. What's been the most difficult part of your recovery process? I'm independent. I want to do what I want to do. You can't do that. Like, I watched people walk. That was my learning. How do they bend their legs? Your muscles and your mind forget walking, talking, driving, going up steps, going down steps, getting out the bed, you know, (laughs) taking a shower. That's something that I was forced to think about and um, evaluate on a day-to-day basis, which I always say it made me a better person, made me a better man. Tell me about COVID Conquerors and why it was founded, what your mission is, and what you hope to accomplish with this organization. Well, when I was in the hospital, my doctors really didn't have an, um, an idea of what was going to happen to me. I would ask, am I going to be able to walk? They didn't know. So they never gave me real answers. So I was watching Rocky. I was watching him run up the steps. And I says, I'm going to do that. And I made a date I wanted to target. One of my therapists told me, you know, listen, you know, you're really motivating a lot of people. So they would have me talk to people in terms of just changing your attitude. I want to help people and in the process help myself. And um, we started COVID v. Conquerors on a FaceTime. When I went on the news, I saw the outpouring of um, love that I was receiving, how much I inspired them, and how it changed their lives. And I says, okay, that's my purpose. And we're looking for other people. We can help in ways like that. Long-term, long COVID, the everyday dealings that we have to go through that Sometimes only we understand. On Sunday, November 28, 2021, Rodney did fulfill that goal of climbing the art museum steps almost a year to the day of contracting COVID. He climbed to the cheers of family, friends, and supporters of his newly formed nonprofit, COVID V Conquerors. I've gained a lot from this in terms of um, finding out about myself, where I am. So it's not all terrible, but um, it's a grind. I think that God put me in this position because he knew I can, I can handle it. I had the shoulders for it. If you or someone you know needs support and assistance dealing with the impact of long-haul COVID, reach out to Rodney Westcott at covidvconquerors.com. You can also follow and support the organization on IG and TikTok at COVID v. Conquerors. Community activist and artist Zarina Lomax is the curator of an Apologues exhibit, which is a show that uses art, fashion, and storytelling to provide healing and connections to families and survivors of violence. 
Her most recent exhibit was at Center's, was at City Hall this summer, and Lomax has a new exhibit opening December 17th at Strivers Row Cafe. She's also looking for a permanent space for the show, as it becomes more than just an exhibit. I'm the CEO and founder of the App Blogs. I'm also um, the host of the Zarina Lomax Show. I guess you can say I'm also an activist, a curator, and I am also an artist myself. So it's a long but short story. So the epilogues was started back in 2018. My girlfriend's daughter, um, Dominique Oglesby, was murdered March 18th of 2018. Her mother's name is Danielle Oglesby. She's one of my best friends. And Dominique was like my little sister. So she was murdered in March of 2018. At the time, I was at Philly Cam. I was hosting TV and radio. I had been doing so at that time for about four and a half years. That started actually because um, I am a rape survivor. I was raped from the ages of five to eight. Um, and then I also, at the age of 17, my father um, went to prison. He's been in prison ever since. He has a life term for murder with no parole. So I had been through a lot growing up. And I had really changed my life at the age of 28, you know, just found God. And I wanted to start a show where people can feel comfortable to come on and tell what they have been through, but also do it in a way that allows people to kind of find themselves and find a path to be able from going from being a victim to a survivor, no matter what they believe. So I did that. And in the like the fourth season is when Don was murdered. So at that time, I started bringing on uh, parents who had lost their children to gun violence. And I was running into an issue of not having enough space to actually hold the interviews because I only came on once a week. Or if I approached some people and said, hey, would you be open to being a guest? They said, I would love to, but I'm not comfortable being in front of the camera telling my story in that type of intimate setting. So I created the epilogues basically as just an idea to honor families who had lost their loved ones. And I always love fashion. Of course, you know, Philadelphia is known for music. I love music and I loved art. So I put it all together into a really big show. So it was really just an event at first and it sold out. And I was just really surprised that it did. Um, did it again, it sold out, but it went from like 15 families to like 65, 70 families the next show. We had made it on a good day, Philadelphia. People kept asking for it. So I knew that I was onto something to be able to help people. So that's how we got started. Now what you're seeing in regards to it moving into an art center is because during the pandemic, I had tried to move to L.A. and go out there for film, but then I ended up coming back because I got in a really bad car accident when I came back. But I always felt like this was not enough as far as having it as an event because we were doing these great things, but we had no resources for these families. Like It was almost like you were traumatizing them again, but we had nothing for them to heal from that. So this is where the epilogues has moved into the exhibit that you've seen at City Hall. I did it that way because I wanted people to see it as more of a center day-to-day compared to just an event that someone has this. And I also incorporated art therapy into the epilogue this year for at-risk youth. So now we're in this space of it now being moved into a center, but more of a healing center where they'll come, they'll be able to get the same thing. It's still going to be very artsy because it's wearable art, it's fashion, it's music, it's all those things, it's art included. But now they will be tapped into resources that will help them begin their journey to heal from what they've been through. So my vision, of course, the biggest thing is to get a space because 
hosting it and doing all these things around the city is very taxing. Secondly, I want something where it can be day to day because, you know, sometimes people just walk by and see what we're doing and they really love it. But, you know, everything has to kind of get broken down. So the biggest thing on the agenda is absolutely getting a space. Second thing is to actually take this on a tour outside of Philadelphia. I have connected with some people out in Chicago, also just went to Miami and Atlanta and it's a couple other cities. So I actually have a list that I wrote down. It's about 15 to 20 cities that are also heavily impacted by gun violence. And again, I don't just do gun violence. I actually do work with people that have had sexual trauma as well and on the perpetrator side. So I do tie all of that in. And opioids is definitely on the agenda this year as well. I did that before, but opioids as well. But nonetheless, taking this on tour, what I find is when I do stuff like this and I bring families in the room that never, you know, had even as much as a conversation with each other, but they see each other's pain and they get to connect through that. They have built out some of the greatest friendships as well as community organizers that I do that with. So my goal is to take this into other cities, let it be impactful there, connect families, connect community organizations but also to create things together because of the fact that this becomes just such an intimate space for us all to open up about our needs and our desires. And they're doing some great things in other cities that we're not. And we're doing some great things here that they're not. So really just using this as a connecting piece through art and being able to take those hubs and move them into different parts of the world. So, you know, basically the art center that I will create here and have in Philadelphia, I want to actually take and host them and have the same type of centers out in other cities and connect people to um, healing resources through the arts. If anything that anybody is doing, please don't count out your gift of what you know how to do well to help other people. I think sometimes people really get caught up in the side of like, I didn't go to school for this. And every single thing that I have been successful with TV, radio, even curating, all of these things. I didn't go to school for any of that. I'm really big on education. I did graduate from college as well this year. However, what I find is that the very thing that I was passionate about, the very thing that people used to tell me that, you know, I need to tone down was the very thing that has helped to heal so many people. Sometimes people that I have never even had a conversation with, but somehow this artist had a conversation with them. Because at this point, our city absolutely needs new things because we're in a new time and these kids and these families are suffering and we have to be able to reach them where they are. So a lot of us have experienced a lot of trauma. Trauma is just simply the tools to help you to help somebody else. Block by Blocks, Brujo de la Mancha has been interviewing indigenous people living in the region. And in his latest report, he brings us this story about one person who has been working to build a support network for Native Americans and other people of color. I'm Diente. I'm a Native in diaspora. I really hold strong to that identity. Ni de aquí, ni de allá. Not from here or from there. Kind of been my whole life. I've met a lot of people who also get that. You know, maybe they were born here, maybe they were born over there, but most of their life they've spent growing up somewhere else. And that's been my life growing up in a lot of different places, moving a lot and only really having the culture, the identity, the traditions that my family have carried with them for many years. I was born in Camden. I've lived my life mostly between here in Philly, Lenape Hawking area or down in Florida and Orlando. 
in like a mostly Boricua and diaspora community. And now I'm raising my children here in Philly. I'm also raising other people's children with my friends, my community here, raising the children here together, trying to come up with something that is ours, not trying to get caught up in this idea of everything that was taken from us or everything that was lost or everything that was left behind. You know, that has consumed my family a lot. So I don't want to be consumed in nostalgia or what could have been, you know, because we're still here. We're alive. We're having babies. We're continuing and we're looking into our future. What you do in your everyday life? Because, you know, I met you in a different situation. I don't really saw you doing the Navy, you know, things or something like that. A lot of people think, you know, that's how supposedly people identify themselves. Like myself, people don't expect all, all I do after they start talking to me, but then just put me in the category as, uh, you know, the squares where the Mexicans belong. Mm-hmm. What are you, your contributions to this whole city now? Well, directly to the community, I'm a person who comes from moving around, not having stability, not having all the resources that that I need growing up. And even though that's still true, you know, it's still hard to get everything that I need. And I see like my neighbors and my friends, my community members going through still the same thing, even if maybe they're not Native, right? My friends and my community neighbors, they are of different identities, but we're kind of all in the same place, you know, marginalized people, people of color, people of the land, colonized people, like together. That's how I believe that we'll be able to get the things that we need. If I try to do it by myself, you know, what I believe ends up happening and I see this happen to a lot of people, it's a simulation. You've given into the structures that are forced on you, like in terms of power, you know, just trying to get ahead or get above everybody else, kind of climb over each other or take what you can get and not thinking about what's left for anybody else or what possibly you can build with somebody else instead of just worrying about getting your own. And so I think about that a lot and that shapes the work that I do. So currently thinking about resources and how we can get resources to people. Me and my partner, we have a project that's called Gente de Tierra. It's mutual aid. It's self-actualization. It's building sovereignty in us as colonized people, trying to liberate ourselves and be sovereign. Our friend Kyle built some aid stands so that we can put one at Bartram's Garden. We're going to put one at Malcolm X. And then another one I'm hoping we can get over at Grace Ferry. Just before you cross the Grace Ferry Bridge, there is a tire shop. And right next to the tire shop, there's actually a community garden there that's been there since the 70s. And it's been predominantly distorted by older Black men of the community. But, you know, people age and don't necessarily have the capacity to do the same work that they have. So the garden only really has one person right now that's there. Our project, Tinta de Tierra, is also working to get more people to that garden and also put one of those aid stands there. And these aid stands are going to have resources, medicine, shelf-stable food, some clothes. We're trying to coordinate with other drop-off locations that it might be better to take items like that, like clothes, like things that shouldn't be sitting outside. We also recently, we got funds to be able to actually create job opportunities around the aid stands for people in the community. So currently we're able to have two paying shifts of work each week where somebody is going to clean the aid stands, make sure they're stocked, maybe do any type of maintenance that may need to happen around there. We can pay $20 an hour for that position, but hoping to be able to pay a little bit more and maybe offer more positions because that's something else that I believe in is like, you know, money is a resource, food is a resource, medicine is a resource. 
And these are all things that we need forever for the rest of our lives up until the, you know, the collapse of our society of capitalism. But in the meantime, these are things that we need. Kind of cutting the middleman, bringing these resources closer into the community, keeping it within kind of the power of the people in the community, right? We are our own bosses. We grow our own food. We make our own medicine, you know, that brings us closer to sovereignty and also healing ourselves. Thank you. That's amazing. Anyway, how people can contact you? How can people see you work to any website? Anything else you like to say? We have an Instagram and on our Instagram, we have a link tree with links to so many different things. Like we have joining our email list or if people want to sign up for being a part of the garden or even being a part of the Indigenous People Celebration, Bartram's Garden that you organize, Brujo. So there's all this stuff on there, so many resources, so many ways to connect. Our Instagram handle is Café con Sabera. Sabera is spelled S-A-B-E-R-A. Thank you. This is amazing. Well, thanks so much to be here with us and block by block, uh, Philly Can News with Brujo de la Mancha and our team on Neighbors of Philadelphia. Thank you. Thank you so much. venue called Solar Myth opened recently in South Philly. Block by Blocks, John Morrison reports on the new spot to check out new and progressive music in Philly and on how Solar Myth is connected to the city's jazz scene. Solar Myth is a new cafe, bar, and live music venue dedicated to avant-garde jazz. Located at 1131 South Broad Street near Ellsworth, the team behind Solar Myth is led by Evan Clancy of Fountain Porter Tavern and Mark Chrisman, the founder and executive artistic director of Ars Nova Workshop. Operating without a home for decades and organizing events around the city, Ars Nova is Philadelphia's premier presenter of the avant-garde. Ars Nova handles the programming for Solar Myth, booking events where Philly audiences can come hear this adventurous and often misunderstood musical genre. But what is avant-garde jazz? Originally pioneered in the late 1950s and early 60s, avant-garde jazz is a musical movement in which artists create unconventional sounds by expanding on traditional approaches to rhythm, melody, and harmony. Unfortunately, avant-garde jazz musicians often struggle to find venues willing to host this left-of-center style of music, thus making Solar Myth an exciting proposition for progressive musicians in Philadelphia and their fans. Mark spoke with us from Solar Myth about Ars Nova and its connection to Philly's jazz scene. Ars Nova's been around since the year 2000. We've been presenting 40, 50 concerts a year in every space imaginable and every neighborhood imaginable in Philadelphia. Been presenting my heroes, many of the architects of the greatest American invention, which is jazz. Lots of folks who are heroes of the underground and, and of course, giants in jazz, you know, from the art ensemble of Chicago and Anthony Braxton and John Zorn to many others. The opportunity for Ars Nova to move into a permanent home 
came in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic and the lockdowns that followed. Before it was Solar Myth, the building at 1131 South Broad was home to Boot and Saddle, a beloved bar and live music venue that originally opened in the 1950s, but was closed from 1996 until another event promoter, R5 Productions, took over the space in 2013. The economic strain caused by COVID forced Boot and Saddle to close its doors before it would eventually reopen as Solar Myth. Bo Gordon is the production manager at Ars Nova and worked as part of the team behind the Solar Myth transition. I'm sure that there was a large part of the conversation as far as planning went that existed for probably several years before I got involved, not necessarily with the business, but with the project. Uh, I know this has been a long time coming, the seeds of which were planted early in quarantine between Mark from Ars Nova and Evan from Fountain Porter. So there's been talk about this for a while. I've been in there working for a good portion of the year, at least since the summer. We were fortunate in many ways that when our five renovated the venue about 10 or 15 years ago, they did a lot of site-specific construction. You know, they really rehabbed the venue in the back room, which changed a lot from its original incarnation. They did a lot of soundproofing to make sure that things didn't leak out into the back room and stuff like that. So in many ways, I was very fortunate that a lot of the site-specific construction was done for us. But at the same time, the previous tenant had moved out. You know, we had Lots of decisions to make about what the stage was going to look like, what our sound reinforcement was going to look like, how the bar was going to change. Um, So there are lots of aesthetic improvements, quality of life improvements, sound improvements. So I think we inherited something that was really great and had a very clear purpose and were able to put a lot of polish on it. Since it opened in November, Solar Myth has hosted a number of evening events featuring jazz legends like Marshall Allen of the Sun Ra Orchestra. While during the day, guests can hang out drink coffee, and peruse the space's expertly curated selection of books and vinyl records. Mark Christman says that the community's response to the new venue has been overwhelming and enthusiastic. Yeah, you know, audiences are coming out like they have never before. 22 years of presenting this music and presenting these extraordinary people And I'm seeing much greater numbers, a very significant increase in attendance literally overnight. You know, this is a special place. Artists are just like, I get it. I feel the energy. You know, these are the vibrations that I'm that I've been waiting to enter into. The other night we had a a sold off performance and, you know, people were very emotional. It was hard for me to leave the place because people wanted to, to communicate that to me audience members. So, yeah, you know, it is it's deep. It's heavy. I'm. I feel like the luckiest person in the world. With plenty of buzz amongst Philly music heads and a robust calendar of upcoming events featuring local, national, and international acts, Solar Myth's future looks bright. Carrying on the legacy of long-gone Philly jazz venues like Pep's Musical Bar and Gino's Empty Foxhole, Solar Myth is providing a much-needed platform for some of the best progressive jazz music being played today. Block by Block is produced by Brulo de Hamancha, John Morrison, Malucca Fruin, Michelle Gillard Houston, Wayne Hunter, and us, Selena Singleton and Chris Hill. Wayne Hunter was our board operator this evening. Brad Linder is Radio News Managing Editor for WPPM, and Allison Durham is WPPM's Radio Production and Programming Coordinator. 
This is the final episode of Block by Block this year and the end of the first season of our show. But Block by Block will be back in the spring with more stories about issues affecting the Philly region filed by members of the community. You can find all episodes of the show on Philly Cam's SoundCloud.